You're listening to the Messy and Glorious podcast, where I turn the light on real and raw stories of everyday people. Me, Sam Osterston, teacher, author and writer, guiding people to heal, connect and inspire through writing so they can find their courage and shine their light in the world. With me today, I have Claudia Herman, who's an attachment and therapeutic parenting consultant and also a therapeutic foster carer teacher and advocate and a mum to two fabulous neurodiverse superstars. She's worked in education and fostering for over 25 years, including supporting young people and their families holistically. She provides bespoke training to organisations, schools, parents and carers, delivering one-to-one work and group work to young people and adults. She believes training needs to be included in the teacher training syllabus because education is the most effective way to break the trauma cycle. She's one of the most loving, compassionate and patient humans I know, yet incredibly fierce. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you. That's really kind. <laughs> so that's how I feel. That's how I feel. I know you and I've watched you with your children and uh, just watching you in the group and everything, um, which we'll talk about after, but you know, just how much you give and how compassionate you are. But just when I see you rock it off you're so fierce with it and it's just um yeah it's absolutely beautiful to watch and I feel so proud of you you know having known you um for such a long time and it's just I just think you're amazing so I will share all these things about you (laughs) and feel proud to do it so okay so for those of you who don't know you um could you just tell our listeners how you got to where you are and why you do what you do Well, I um, went into teaching a lot of years ago and I'd always had, I'd always had an interest, I suppose, back when I was still at school, when I was doing my Mm A-levels, I was a volunteer tutor for an adult literacy class. And if I try and track back my interest in sort of plugging the gaps for people, you know, where where there are there are gaps that make people quite vulnerable whether that's educationally or in life or emotionally and that was probably my first interest would have been at high school so it's a really really old interest wow wow okay so um so how did you get from that sort of you know the extent of what you do now and and you know in that not only do you um do that you know do do what you do as, as a, a career you actually bring that to your home as well so just share a little bit more about that well all credit has to go to my kids I'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> I really can't claim any credit at all for the path that I'm currently on and I'm incredibly grateful to them for it and specifically Um, We had a fabulous little man come and join our family over five years ago now Mm -hmm. and he came to us on a fostering placement and I was I was incredibly complacent actually and our supervising social worker was saying to me he's really complex you know are you are you sure he's really complex and I was going oh yeah yeah it's fine I've worked with loads more challenging kids than this you know blah 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 because I have you know I've yeah. worked in residential settings where you know teenage boys are throwing chairs at you and, and smearing yeah, yeah. poo 
Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> and you know, and this absolutely isn't to do with bad kids because there no. is no thing as a bad kid. This is how certain challenges present themselves for, yeah. for different children. So I was super complacent. Oh, I've worked with loads more challenging kids, rah, rah, rah. Hadn't lived with any of them. Used to go home, used to work with them, yeah. have needles of empathy and compassion, and then go home. <laughs> <laughs> yes. and have a pint of wine and unwind and, and self-care and all of those things so this wonderful little man did come to live with us and um, his challenges were immense and although I hadn't underestimated his challenges I had completely underestimated how challenging it would be for me mm-hmm. to, to live with yeah. a complex child 24 7 yeah and I had completely underestimated those challenges so I very very quickly needed to upskill myself yeah okay. so it worked for everybody yeah. so that put me on the path that I'm on now and I'm eternally grateful to him for that because I am loving it and I'm yeah. so glad that my world is broader than teaching now oh my god yeah I'm so broad and isn't that amazing, though, how people come into our lives, you know, and children and, and you know, I, I've got four and each one of them has made me look at the world differently and mm. adapt accordingly. And also, yeah, like get stuck in to different learnings myself in order to serve, you know, to serve the children and to, to be there for them and support them and help and guide them on their way that, you know, they've already carved out. You know, you just have to listen and notice that don't you and I I, yeah I think that's amazing that your work has come from uh, who you know the little man who is 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 amazing sprightly um young person who yeah is definitely um inspiring uh when when I spent time with you he was like just wow I just I just love the way way um you know it looks at life it's amazing um so Let's share more about, I know we've talked about um, in the past, because uh, you are passionate about this and it has taken you on a direction of advocate, advocacy and, and, and supporting other people who are going through the same things and, and, and other things that are similar to, to what you go through on a daily basis, you know, challenges and, um, and looking at how we can get through the education system and daily life uh home life you know all these things that 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 put an unnecessarily brick walls up really so i know you've done some advocacy but can you share a little bit more about what that is and how that helps people and and, and maybe sort of share a bit of experience i know you can't go into full detail but just maybe share some experiences you've had that maybe people can relate to i think that really the reason that I retrained in advocacy was because our little man um, and how how fostering works is the status of children in the UK Mm -hmm. is that they are either the property of their parents or the property of the state they're not fully human beings and until adulthood really is is the bottom line and um, I think that unless people stop to think about that it's quite a shocking concept because we have a very rose-tinted view of childhood in this country. 
And it's not that many generations ago that as a society, and a, we were putting kids up chimneys and, and down mines and they were working in industry. So <clears throat> the view that we have of children is quite complex in this country. It's not straightforward at all. And so our little man, when we, um, it's probably worth mentioning that in May this year, we achieved SGO for him, which is a special guardianship order. Um, and so now he's no longer the, the property of the state. He's a, a fully signed up member of our family now, which is wonderful. So excited um, for that. that so, I know that so now I can, a long time coming. Yeah, absolutely. So now I can really gob off on his behalf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the huge frustrations that, that took me down the path I'm on is that when he was um, the property of the state, shall we say, and he, you're, what happens is when you're a, a young person in the care system, in the care of the state, your local authority is your corporate parent. I mean, even the language we use, it's so, it's, it's foul, so, isn't it? you know, fancy having a corporate parent. Oh. So anyway, so his, his corporate parent, I felt, wasn't doing a terribly good job because people who go into, into these sorts of professions do so with every good intention. You know, nobody trains to become a social worker or a teacher or to work in healthcare. Nobody trains for a caring profession with the intention of only doing half a job. Mm. And the reality is that people are firefighting every single day. They're being asked to achieve more and more with less and less. So I've got every, every empathy for everybody who I come in con into contact yeah. even though they might not like me because I make life quite difficult because I, I will challenge and I'll say well why is this not happening and, and what's happening with this and this is a vulnerable child and you're, you're his corporate parent and what, is this good enough for your own children? Yeah. And so I probably, there probably are professionals who hide when they see me coming. So <laughs> the advocacy thing was... Um, our young man, there were discussions being had about him. He's, he's very vulnerable. He's educationally vulnerable. He's emotionally vulnerable. He's experienced um, enormous trauma in his early life. Yeah. Um, and guess what? Kids don't wake up one morning and that's all fixed. No. <laughs> um, so, so I kept saying for about... For about two years, so you have these looked after child reviews, these lack reviews, sort of every yeah. three months or six months or whenever. And every single one, I'd go, Can he have an advocate? You know, I was aware that such people existed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'd say, Can he have an advocate? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that would be written down in the minutes and nothing would happen. And it took, it took nearly five years for us to secure SGO for him. And in that time, he never had access to advocacy. So I retrained and obviously I can never be his advocate in inverted commas because of the conflict of interest. Yeah. But it taught me um, what I needed to be asking because I think when we find ourselves keep hitting a brick wall that you described earlier, yeah. it's because we're not asking the right questions. Yeah. It's like finding the key. You know when you've yes, got a massive, yes. massive of keys and you're desperately trying to open a door and you're going through all these different keys to find the right one and it just boils down to asking the right questions yeah and when I figured out what the right questions were 
things started to happen for him, which isn't to say that it was easy at all. It was it was really quite epic. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I totally get that from, from you know, we've spoken about it. It's, yeah, it, it is epic. And it's difficult for, I think, for me, even though I've had issues myself with, with, with kids and challenges and um, to, to understand how epic that is. And, and what people go through on a daily basis when they have children with challenges and they're trying to work through the education system and the legal system and um, definitely um, uh, yeah learning to ask the right questions um, one thing I was going to ask you actually if, if parents and carers are struggling um, you know what what and where where can they find help I know they can they find help with you but if they're like in in immediate need where where is a good place to go um you know in their local area maybe they can perhaps find some help and support quickly the difficulty is um if i'm thinking about children with educational vulnerabilities yeah. there are organizations like parent partnership in wales the snap cymru um the difficulty with these organizations is um, oh, I'm going to be so careful how I say this because again, these are people working very hard to do the best they can. Yeah, For no, me, I totally get that, and I think I just I will just say to our listeners, we both really understand that everyone is trying to do their best, and it's resources and you know money, financial, everything, red tape that prevents people on the majority from doing these things, isn't it? Absolutely. And the difficulty that I have found in, in many different scenarios for, for both of my kids yeah. is um, issues around impartiality. Okay. Because what often happens when you drill down and you have a look at where funding comes from, local authorities are obliged to provide um, an independent service for parents and carers. And if that service is being funded by the local authority, how independent can it be? Yes. Okay. So yes, completely <laughs> get that. Yeah. And so very much um, their hands can be quite tied. I mean, I had an experience myself when I used to work in children's centres. I used to be um, Senko child protection officer. I wore lots of different hats in the children's centres. And the work that was happening in children's centres back back in the, the olden days of Sure Start was incredible. You know, the early intervention yeah. work, it was so incredibly valuable. And then in, in 2010, um, we, we had a, a change of view and a change of priority nationally. And it's incredibly difficult to secure a statement or an EHCP yeah. for a child. It's incredibly difficult. It takes a minimum, really, of a year to secure all the evidence that you need to take um, a child's um, case to, to panel for approval for a statement yeah. from the HCP. So you're looking at a minimum of a year. And in 2010, I had secured seven statements for right. children. Who, are, who were in the children's centres. So obviously children's centres, they were targeted in areas where there were known to be obvious vulnerabilities. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that you can go into any area and you will find vulnerabilities because yeah. when you're looking at vulnerability factors, 
um, finance is a significant aspect, but it certainly isn't the only aspect yeah. Yeah. for vulnerability. And so, um, so I secured seven statements, which absolutely was just a huge amount of work and a fantastic result because it meant that these, these young people could either go on into a specialist school, leave the children's centre, go to a specialist school, or have a shot at mainstream with the appropriate support in place yeah. for them. And my line manager said to me, um, can you stop identifying these children, please? It's very expensive. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. Which was, it was kind of counter to what I had believed my role was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> both, both professionally and in life. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then interestingly enough, my role then became redundant and the children's centres all but dissolved in the local authority that I was in at that time, which yeah. is desperately sad. And um, so that, you know, when people get made redundant, it can feel like the sky's falling down. And it, it was incredibly stressful at the time. But now I look back at that. And again, that was another really, really pivotal moment that put me on this path because yeah. I'd always been interested in fostering and adoption for, for years and years and years, as long as I can remember. And it had never felt like the right time. Because I, I was doing child protection work within education settings. So I um, knew how incredibly challenging life was for lots of our children. And I was watching children going into emergency placements and, and having um, removals from their families and how deeply traumatic that was for, for everybody. And then and I was thinking, how on earth do I squidge that in? with teaching full-time and a whole bunch of other responsibilities. And then all of a sudden, teaching full-time got taken away. And I was like, oh, oh, maybe. <laughs> maybe now's the time to look at fostering properly. Okay, blessing in disguise. Absolutely. They're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to spot them. <laughs> Completely. Oh my god, yeah, they 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 pop up unexpectedly, and I think yeah, sometimes you need them to hit you in the face a few times before you realise they're there as well, don't you? Absolutely, and I'm so sorry because I don't even think I answered your advocacy question. <laughs> it's okay, whatever came out is meant to come out. I, I think I think um, for me it was more, you know, I I know you you'd been doing it, and I I don't think people actually realise it's there. As, a, mm. as, a, as something people somebody else can do for you to advocate for you during the process of um getting a statement or getting something in particular for you know maybe what what are the kind of things that you may advocate for that would be able to help parent and carers um, well through a process with their young people there are independent advocates and um, the, the going rate, if you like, for advocacy tends to be around about £30 an hour, okay. um, which for, and th this is the issue with, with my service in its broader sense, is if your young person is so very complex that you're, you're living off your £66 a week carer's yeah. allowance, um, where are you going to find 30 quid? Yeah. For, for advocacy support so I'm looking into um, applying for grants and, and maybe looking in the future at a charitable status or a community interest group yeah. status 
so that that can be subsidised um, for for families. Because the, really, as soon as you have a complex or vulnerable person in your family group, those complexities and vulnerabilities increase. Yeah. So you have a, you know, you have a child who is medically complex, you're at home looking after them. Oh, guess what? You've just become financially vulnerable too. Yes. It, it's that domino effect that is incredibly difficult. It's, it's unimaginably difficult. Um, so the kinds of things that I support people with and how people so far um, fund accessing my service would be if, for example, a person is in receipt of um, disability living allowance for under 16s or PIP for adults. Yeah. And I can't remember what that stands for. Personal independent. Don't worry, I, I will. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> I'll find out. <laughs> no, it's all just letters. It's all just letters. Yeah, every letter you've said, and I, I've written it down, and I will find out what it is, and I will, I will decode it under the show notes for everyone. Okay. So. <laughs> so, people who I've supported with advocacy, I have supported um, young people who have been um, in the looked-after system or and or um had additional educational needs mm -hmm. and i have done advocacy for them in order to secure the right educational facility for them um and i've done advocacy for um young adults and and for for other adults as well who are vulnerable because of mental health issues or learning um issues mm -hmm. And um, I have worked with um, people who are nonverbal communicators. So a particularly interesting young man who I still work with on and off, um, he's a, a very complex and vulnerable young man who was in the looked after system and, and now is a, a fully fledged member of a family, which is wonderful. And he is medically and educationally very complex and he's a nonverbal communicator. And where people get very, very hung up is they think that if we're not verbal communicators, we have nothing to say. Okay, yeah. We don't do that with babies. Babies cry. We pick them up. We problem solve. We figure out what's going on. We sort stuff out for them. Yeah. Now, when you are a young person or an adult who is a nonverbal communicator, it's not different. <laughs> No. It's still communication. Communication does not have to involve speaking words. So, so this young man, um, there was um, his family was um, going to tribunal, as so many of us end up doing, mm -hmm. to secure the, the right education for this young man. And the advocacy that I provided was I spent quite a long time getting to know this young man in different environments. So I visited him at home so I could observe him in his home environment. And then I did an observation of him um, in his learning environment at school so that I could then say to his, his parents, um, I, I agree with the concerns that you have. Here's what I observed. Or actually what I observed um, completely contradicts your concerns. Yeah. Maybe you don't need to worry about this. And the, the thing with, with advocacy, what's really interesting is you are working for, for that person and on their behalf. Mm -hmm. 
So it can feel like there's a conflict of interest if it's their parents paying you. Yeah. You, can, you might feel obligated to, to agree with their view of a situation. And it's really, really incredibly important to say to, to whoever is paying you at the very beginning and, and to have it written into your contract that um, although they're paying you, you do not work for them. Yeah. You work for the person on whose behalf you're advocating. And it's all about ensuring that vulnerable people's voices are heard. Yeah. And that people are done with rather than done to. Yeah. Because we have a massive history of doing to rather than with. And also advocacy is not about waving a magic wand. You know, I when I work with um, people who are verbal communicators and with young people particularly, <clears throat> I might say, you know, I always say to them at the beginning of a piece of work, I do not have a magic wand. You can tell me, you can tell me what you want to achieve and I will support you in putting that forward and support young people to um, compose and send emails to their social workers, for example, if they feel that they're not being heard in a process. And I will support young people to do that, but I always make sure it's really, really clear to them that I don't have a magic wand and sometimes what they're asking for is not achievable for lots of very very good reasons yeah i i think yeah you've got to you've got to be able to <coughs> lay that down haven't you um and i guess setting expectations must be incredibly difficult to, to because as a parent or carer you know you want the very best don't you and you kind of yeah you get you can like what you're saying you kind of get blindsided to what that might be and so looking at it from a different perspective when an advocate comes in must be you must worry that the, the, the needs that you assumed were were required are not going to be met or may not be met in some way um, and look very different. But, yeah, I guess it's, it's yeah, at the end of the day, everyone is, is, is of service to the venerable person, aren't they? And it's also it's about managing people's hurt. And I know that sounds incredibly nebulous, but when when people um, feel the need for an advocate, it's because things are going really badly wrong and they don't feel heard. And the parents yeah. or the carers feel very powerless. The young person is very powerless because they're, they're at the mercy of decisions that others are making on their behalf. Mm -hmm. And, for example, when I work with... Um, young people who are in the care system what is quite often a feature for them is that their biggest wish of all is to return to their birth family okay that can't be achieved for for many young people because the the thresholds the child protection thresholds in this country are absolutely sky high um so when young people are removed from their birth families there, there are usually um, very, you, I say usually, there are usually very sound reasons for that. Mm -hmm. And in those situations, I would never want to crush that young person's dreams. But I would certainly have a, a conversation with that young person and explain to them that the decisions that were made 
were by a judge in a court because in this country the only people with the power to remove your children from you are the police mm. under emergency circumstances or a judge in a court yeah. social workers don't have that power teachers don't have that power it's mm-hmm. the courts the courts or um or the police and so when i explain this to to these young people and I say, well, your, your birth family love you dearly. And when I say that, I don't believe I'm ever lying to anybody. Yeah. Parents do love their children dearly. It, might, it may not present itself in a way that you and I would recognize yeah. for all sorts of reasons, you know, intergenerational vulnerabilities. Um, the, the statistics, these are quite old, but they're probably not far off still, are that um, 97% of children who are removed from their birth families are removed because of a lack of capacity to parent appropriately. Okay. Gosh, that's so that, that means that only 3% of young people who find themselves in the care system only 3% of them, it's still far too high and horrendous, but only 3% of them were maliciously harmed by their birth family. Right. You know, 97%, there's a lack of capacity. I mean, that's, that's horrendous because, that is. you know, a lack of capacity is, is a really, really broad spectrum. And I think there are things we could do a lot, lot better. Yeah to upskill these people who lack capacity for whatever reason. And when I explain that to young people and say, it's not your fault, it's not your fault that you don't live with your birth family. Because young people, adults as well, to be fair, when something goes wrong, our, usually our first consideration is it was our fault. We did something, we did something oh, wrong. Yeah. We're a bad person, what did I do wrong? And then as an adult, you begin to unpick it and you begin to look from all sorts of different angles and you go, do you know what? Maybe it wasn't me. Maybe that wasn't about me. And for for children, it's always about them and it's only about them. Mm. So when children find themselves in the care system, their, their sole belief is because they were not good enough. If only I'd kept my room tidy, I'd still live with my mum. If only I was a better person, I'd still live with my mum. And so when I have conversations with young people in the care system and say, it's not your fault, you can see the relief flood across their faces. It's like weight's been lifted. I explain to them that the reasons that they're in the care system, it's not their birth family's fault either. No. You know, we have such a binary view of the world. It has to be somebody's fault. You know, it's a, it's a world made up of good people and bad people. There's goodies, there's baddies. There's actually, there's vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> there's an enormous gulf between good and bad that is filled with vulnerable. And when I explain to young people that their birth families do love them and it wasn't their choice for them to no longer live with them, that... Mm-hmm. that was made by a judge in a court because you're a child and a judge in a court decided that you are important you're special and you have to be safe yeah complete yeah and you, you kind of you almost see these young people begin to process um forgiving themselves for something they thought was their fault 
and forgiving their their birth family because you know the the whole sort of um whirlwind of emotions of well i i love these people but they've let me down and i feel really angry with them and oh my god now i'm really disloyal as well as really bad mm. you know and just the internal tussle with all these emotions and once they begin to understand it's it's really nobody's fault and I can't magic that better for them, but I can make sure they're heard. Yeah. So if what they want to say is that they desperately want to return to their birth family, I will support them to say that in a way that is heard. However, I have to explain to them why that is unlikely to happen. And that's yeah. part of the grieving process. Yeah, uh, yes, completely. Now, you um, spoke there about the 97% of people have, not having the capacity to parent. Do you, and, and throughout, we've sort of talked or, or pointed towards trauma. Do you feel that, and we'll talk more about trauma in a minute, but do you feel that capacity, lack of capacity is based on, on people having um, previous traumas or traumas happening? Um, that has meant that they don't have the capacity or is it financial or where where does that lack of capacity come from um I think certainly I would agree very strongly with the first part of of what you said yeah. that none of us wake up one morning to discover that our life is a car crash that doesn't happen yeah it's um it's often generation after generation after generation mm -hmm. within that parenting is also of its time so for, for you and i um you know i mean obviously because people aren't going to see us when they listen to the podcast we're both <laughs> no older than 20 but <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 and then <laughs> but in, in the real world because we're 20 times two add a bit um when when we were growing up you know the view of parenting that our parents had might have been i'm an amazing parent because i don't wallop my kids nearly as hard as the people down the road wallop their kids oh my god completely yeah yeah definitely so parenting is very much of its time and within within that when you you're talking about about 97% lack capacity within that that vulnerability when you drill it down it's always 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 trauma so the the cycle you know if i think about our young man he certainly his birth family situation certainly would fall within within yeah. that you know, and, and complex and multiple vulnerabilities. So he is loved dearly by his birth family. Um, his his mum um, is a, a very, very vulnerable and complex lady. Um, she has her own learning difficulties and mental health difficulties and was in the care system herself as a child. And when actually that is your benchmark, and you become a parent yourself um how, how do you know how do you even know what to do what is your support network what does that look like you know and i i don't certainly don't mind sharing this but when i had my my birth daughter i was absolutely walloped with postnatal depression okay which was like being hit by a truck <laughs> 
And, yeah. <laughs> and in terms of identity, I really struggled with that because I was like, this isn't who I am. You know, I'm this really tough person who gets everything done. What's going on? You know, and I took it very personally. <laughs> you do, though, don't you? It, yeah, when absolutely. you're affected by mental health, um, you know, I, I have my own experiences. And it, it's like you're, you're, you've been taken out of yourself completely and and but you can it's like you're watching isn't it <laughs> you're watching yeah. you're like that's not me <laughs> but yeah so you your experience is is it's almost like an out-of-body experience I think completely and we really really judge ourselves very harshly indeed it's incredibly hypocritical because if we were to watch a friend going through a similar thing we'd go or oh, be kind to yourself yeah. <laughs> Um, and so when, when I unpicked all of that and I, I accessed um, really, really very excellent support, very excellent support, but my own personal support network <clears throat> was that I have a very lovely friend who noticed when my daughter was six weeks old that I really wasn't myself. Okay. And she said, you might want to mention this to your health visitor. Oh, and I was nice. like, okay, because I hadn't noticed at all. I knew that the sky was falling down, but I couldn't pinpoint why. Yeah. <laughs> and so a really, really helpful, insightful friend noticed. What if you don't have a friend? Completely. And yeah, I can relate to that because I, since moving down here, I don't have close friends. I don't have, an, I don't have anyone. And, and um, I still managed to get people when I, when I had iron and, and um, I wasn't very well. Um, managed to get some friends um you know that came out of the woodwork but I didn't have anyone that was really close to me that I mm. could have shared how I was feeling apart from my husband you know and I think um it is really hard in today's society where we have been split as communities haven't we we mm. don't live near our friends and family and we are incredibly vulnerable in situations Absolutely. like having children having a baby um dealing with with crisis and and the challenges that you know we've, we've both been through with our own children when there's no one on your doorstep to give you you know a helping hand um, absolutely or to even notice you know yeah. for somebody else to notice oh you're not okay it might mm. be worth getting some support with this if if there is nobody, if you do not have a network of support, of of friends, even you know, I'm not even yeah. talking about professionals at this point. No friends who know you, who know when <clears> you're, because not everyone would notice. Even maybe a professional yeah. sometimes might not notice when you would be out of sorts because they don't necessarily know you before, do they? Absolutely. So they've no benchmark of what no. you what you look like on a normal day, and so then when I did get fabulous professional support we unpicked it all and um the the triggers for me with the postnatal depression had been um a, a fear i kept having intrusive thoughts it was a fear about my own parenting and that went back to my experiences in childhood yeah so without asking people to get teeny tiny little violins out i had um really a few standout traumatic experiences in childhood and the whole point of trauma is um 
it's a terrifying experience or, or a prolonged series of experiences over which we have no control. So that's the whole point of trauma is it's that loss of control. And so when I unpicked it all with, with a very, very skilled professional, which was wonderful because this was all on the NHS. <laughs> oh my God, it, yeah. It was just remarkable. It was absolutely remarkable. And unpicked it all and I reflected on a lot of stuff and I revisited a lot of stuff that I'd pushed away and, and shut away and shut down. And when you push things down, they do bite you on the bum later. And that was exactly what had happened. Yeah. And when I think about vulnerable families who I work with, um, where they don't have these opportunities, you know, I was supported by an incredible therapist for almost a year, which was just absolutely remarkable. It was incredible. And um, I don't even know if that's available now. You know, counselling services yeah. now seem to be rationed to six sessions. Mm -hmm. And when I work therapeutically with people, when I work with, with adults, for example, it usually takes six sessions before they've even figured out what the issue is. Oh, completely. You, you, you kind of dance does. around for six sessions. Yeah. And, and then you're building you rapport, aren't you? You're building a yeah. trust and a rapport with the person you're counselling, and and that takes a, an incredible amount of time, depending on the the trauma that's happened. And you know, yeah, six sessions are not that's that's an introductory to to counselling, isn't it? It's not even so touching the surface. Absolutely. So then, what happens is people kind of go right. Well, it's taken me six sessions to figure out why I feel so terrible and what's going on for yeah. me. And now you're telling me to go off and get on with my life. And you've yeah. just opened this big can of worms. Um, and I've no idea what to do with this. So in some ways, people are left worse off. And they kind of go, do you know what? I wish I hadn't even started that process. Yeah. So I think that in terms of, of vulnerability and, and parenting and parenting capacities, we do people a huge disservice because the support that is offered is completely counterproductive unless they've got the, the, the access or the means to do follow-up work um, yeah. privately and, and that all costs money. Yeah. So then finance becomes a vulnerability. It's, so it, it's yeah. incredibly complex. It really is incredibly complex. And I only really see quite short-sighted views since, since the demise of the children's centres. I'm yet to find anything very joined up. Um, but go, going back, just, you know, flitting about wildly, going back to where do parents access support and we yeah. talked about parent partnership and snap recovery uh -huh. and places like that. A really, really incredible source of support is of the parents on the school gate, if I'm absolutely honest. Okay. And that requires an enormous amount of bravery. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah. Because what if they judge you? They don't. Yeah. The reality is they don't. But what if they do? So it requires an incredible amount of bravery, socially and emotionally, to approach other parents on the school gate, strike up, up friendships or, or some kind of network, and to, to say, I'm finding this really hard. Yeah. And then the first person to be brave enough to say, I'm finding this really hard, there's then a deluge of <laughs> other parents going, oh, my God, it's really hard. 
And then before you know it, you round at someone's house having coffee and radi radi ra. Yeah. And that, you know, that's all. There are barriers to that. So first of all, you need to be massively brave, really, really brave, and put yourself at risk of rejection. Yeah. Because what? What if the first parent you approach? is having a really hard time themselves and just goes, oh, I really haven't got time for this and shuts you down. Yeah, completely. Or, you know, or what if you are working full time, the school run is an absolute whirlwind, or you don't even do the school run yourself. And actually, for parents who are not on the surface financially vulnerable because they're holding down a job, they will be socially very vulnerable because, yes, they, they can keep a roof over their kid's head, but where's their network? Yeah, and I, I definitely relate to that because, like I say, since I've been down here, I work, I've always worked, actually, um, full-time, full ta- full like, not been at the school gate for most of my children's lives. And I used to miss out on so much. And, and the most key thing to that was not making relationships with those parents who parented my my children's friends and Mm. that did leave me yeah socially vulnerable incredibly so and it's 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 painful um actually and even now like you say it it is really hard to approach people at the school gate and kind of give them a coy smile and you know walk past and you like desperate to want to say something but you kind of everyone just walks past a lot of the time don't they when they actually just really need each other completely and I think that you know we talked about earlier where we make everything be about us yes and oh, oh you know, yeah. that, that person's rejected me and and rah 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 and actually when when we reframe that and we go well what's going on for that person yeah because um, when I'm working with kids, it's really quite amusing because I do um, a, quite a bit of one-to-one work with young people who are at risk of um, exclusion from school or, you know, at risk of school refusal, you know, at risk of just not going anymore because they can't cope. And quite often it will be real or perceived. And for me, there's really no difference whatsoever because yeah. perception is real. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so there'll be real, real or perceived issues around bullying. Yeah. So I use the word perceived in huge inverted commas. And when you unpick that with a young person, it's because they really don't feel very good about themselves. So somebody does something or behaves in a way, oh, that's because they hate me or oh, they're bullying me or oh, rah, rah, rah. And when we unpick it and I say, well, the the bottom line is that, happy people aren't mean happy kids aren't mean Mm -hmm. what's going on for that kid because I don't think about you and then they'll go oh yeah oh well so and so has got this going on at home and as soon as I give a young person the tools to step back and for it not to be about them anymore Mm. it's more manageable yeah and then I do a lot of work with them around the, the biology of behavior and this is the work that I do when I go into schools where in in very very simple terms and there's loads of people doing great 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 work on this far far better than me um so if people want to have a look at dan vogel okay. i think he's called dan vogel he's definitely called vogel because it's a german word for bird and <laughs> and then there's dan hughes and um who else there's heaps of people margot sunderland she's wonderful 
Um, so when I talk to young people about the biology of behavior, I say, right, your, your brain stem, um, I'm going to do it for you, although nobody will be able to see it because you, <laughs> you can see it. So you've got your brain stem that does all the very, very basic stuff of like reminding you to breathe, which is uh -huh. helpful. And then you've got your caveman brain, which is your amygdala, which kept our, our ancestors alive and made sure they didn't get eaten by saber-toothed tigers and stuff when they lived in caves. And then we've evolved to have all the clever stuff on top, all the learning stuff. And your amygdala has only really got one job, and that's to keep us safe. Uh -huh. So if you think of your amygdala like a smoke alarm. Okay, that's a good, uh, good analogy. Like a smoke alarm, it can't tell the difference between burning your toast and your house burning to the ground. It's just going to go off. Yeah. So when, when you've had trauma or traumatic experiences, your amygdala is hyper, hyper, hyper primed to keep you safe because mm -hmm. it, it has to keep you alive. It has to keep you safe. So it will perceive danger and threat where there is none. So for a kid who's had um, any kind of a trauma in, in their past, the amygdala is so hyper, hyper vigilant, constantly on the lookout for threat. And when it goes off like a smoke alarm, exactly like a smoke alarm, you cannot hear anything else. Once it's going off, that's all that's happening. So all the clever stuff is knocked offline. Mm -hmm. Literally, it's offline. And all you've got is the amygdala going, wah, wah, wah. And the, the chemical response to that is you get a rush of adrenaline ready for you to fight or flight, mm -hmm. which is great if you're going to get it by a saber-toothed tiger. Yeah. But we haven't evolved yet to go, but I'm sitting in a classroom. What am I going to do with all this adrenaline? Yeah. So the closest I can compare that sensation to is when you're driving a car and you have a near miss, you know, somebody cuts you up, something <laughs> happens. And you get, you get the shakes. Yes. You yeah. get the shakes because you're so frightened about what might have happened or what nearly happened. And you get the shakes and that's the adrenaline rush so you can fight or flight. But again, in evolutionary terms, you're sitting in a car. What are you meant to do with this adrenaline? Yeah. And because there's nowhere for it to go, the, the physical sensation is so unpleasant. It feels so horrible. And it takes 40 minutes for your adrenaline level to return to normal. And 40 minutes is a lesson. That's exactly. And I think I, I'm totally with you on the fact that these kind of things need to be an inherent part of the teacher training syllabus. Because what I found from my own experience is that with my eldest boy, who has, has some social and emotional uh, vulnerabilities, is that that was exactly what was happening he was stressed about one thing it could have been the noise of the felt on the whiteboard or or somebody next to him you know getting in his ocd space or whatever mm -hmm. and and that would be it he would go Vumph. it would just be an explosion and that would just escalate because the people in the room didn't know how to deal with the issue that he was facing and to the fact that just to give him space was the best thing instead it would be stop that stop that red light green light to get out of the room do it whatever you're going to be in detention or you're going to do this or whatever and that's the worst thing you can do because you're just piling it's like you're piling extra stress on the top of the the already Absolutely. explosive load isn't it and it's such a punitive view as if um 
as if somehow there's a choice involved or, or a decision involved. And it, this is biology. We don't have choice. No. And there's a young person who I've been working with at the moment. And I, I love, love, love working with young people because basically the younger, the better, you know, they're so receptive. Mm-hmm. And so this young person, I've done a lot of work on the biology of the brain and he has absorbed all of these words just into his language and he's very, very reflective. And he was, he was telling me the other day that, um, you know, when he was at school, he could feel his amygdala freaking out a bit. And he's, you know, he's using words like amygdala. Oh, my amygdala was freaking out a bit. So I told it to calm down and that we were safe. And then he did a meditation because I, I teach young people meditation techniques of, yeah. of how to take themselves to a safe space. Yeah. It's just inside their head. Yeah. Um, and his mum was quite funny. She said, oh, I hope, I hope he's not just meditating like for entire lessons. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to her, well, if he is, he's still in class. You know, yeah. that, that's the result. That's a success. Oh, my God, um, yeah, yeah. You know, so giving people strategies. And, you know, maybe for your son, if I'd been able to get my mitts on him when he was much, much younger and, and given him these strategies and techniques... If a kid is meditating for, for a 40 minute lesson, do you know what? They're still in that lesson. And yeah. it's, it's, far, it's a far greater benefit than them having this view of themselves as a bad kid being reinforced through a, a red card, green card system. It's yeah. so counterproductive. But, you know, the teaching profession, they're drowning. It's really hard. And I... I look back on my days when I was teaching full time and I loved every minute of it. And I don't think that my practice was so terrible that I ever damaged anybody, but I so wish I'd known then what I know now. Oh, oh my God. I, I used to, I taught um, as a TA in primary school with no, you know, no, um, apart from I've taught older kids, but no primary school knowledge. Mm. And um, often the TAs stand in for the teachers where I where I and um, and you're teaching these tiny little children and things are said and and being able to manage that in a group of thirty kids and sometimes that can be more is is a massive pressure. Um, you can't reach everybody. You can't as one person. You can't be there for everybody in the same mm-hmm. capacity no matter how much you try it, mm. it it's an it's overload isn't it completely and i also think that tas traditionally are often given um vulnerable kids to support oh yeah because yeah because the structure is that teachers get on with the teaching yeah. and the the tas are to my mind they're the emotional caretakers mm-hmm. And they are asked to fulfil that role without training. Without completely. I definitely was thrown in the deep end when I went. And I think, that, I think the lack of training isn't only doing a huge disservice to, to TAs in terms of, of failing to recognise the, the importance of the role, but it's also really unsafe. You know, I was doing supply teaching in a school once and my, um, you know, my child protection radar is, is always on. <laughs> and there was, it was, a, you know, I think these were like reception year one kids. They were very, very tiny children. And 
a, a young child made a very, very serious disclosure to a TA and the TA told the child off. Oh my God. And the reason for that is because um, it triggered the child's disclosure triggered a huge discomfort for the TA. Yeah. And yeah. when we feel very uncomfortable, we shut people down because yeah. we go, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear that. It's too unpleasant. It's going to trigger me. Yeah. Um, so actually, if you're working with human beings in any capacity whatsoever, you need to know how to not do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I took this child protection concern onto the to the head you know and I didn't get in a fight with the TA about it because she hasn't been trained it no. obviously caused triggers for her that that I needed to be respectful of um but at the end of the day a lack of training leaves everybody vulnerable yeah so how much child protection stuff is getting missed yeah it's just absolutely huge and how many kids who have already got immense challenges in their lives are being fed the message that they're bad kids through oh, a way <laughs> too many way too know, many a punitive system when we're talking about behavior management we're talking about dog training don't do yeah. that yeah. we're not talking about um helping young people to understand their own triggers and to give them strategies to support themselves and take control of their own emotions yeah and then oh my word guess what these kids end up in, well, you know, you've seen my little graphic, haven't you? Yeah, you know? yes, I have. Um, yeah, so um, could I can I, I can I share that graphic when? Yes, when I please. Finish? Do, yeah. So Claudia Me said a cycle of rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> cycle of um, trauma um, graphic with me and. Um, the adverse childhood experiences increase the right, you know, our risk of school ex exclusion, um, poor academic outcomes, placement disruption. What can you just say what placement disruption would be classed as just so we it would be for a young person who is fostered or adopted okay okay um homelessness um you know entering the criminal system um as a youth or, or then as an adult and employment uh poor mental health which we all, we i think is becoming more realized isn't it that, that that's what's actually been experienced drug and alcohol um misuse and self-medicating general poor physical health we hold trauma in our bodies don't we at the end of the day we, we hold it yeah. in our bodies and that can, can um come out as a bad back or a knee or you know or headache it, it, it can be affected in, in so many different ways can it and how we um trauma is held in our body and then you've got the the second and third generational um traumas which i think what people don't realize is that our own childhood experiences that have created traumas but also our parents or grandparents or you know it all has a knock-on effect with our mm. uh, uh, humans as end products i think i had to say it like that in inverted commas that, that we, we we collect this baggage don't we mm. over the generations and um and and so we might not even be aware of the traumas that are affecting the way we behave there's um, some absolutely fascinating stuff coming out of the States at the moment. Um, I believe it's called epigenetics, but don't quote me on that. Okay. Um, where researchers were studying a bunch of um, girls, I think they were aged 10 to 13, 
and they were studying their genetic makeup and these girls had all had um very significant trauma mm-hmm. um and the trauma altered the genetic makeup and wow. when we think about um pass you know passing trauma on second yeah. third generation trauma you know when people um there's a whole generations of kids who grow up within war yeah you know and when we think about um you know children who are born in in refugee camps the average length of time that a person will spend in a refugee camp before they are are rehomed in in another country is 17 years Jesus you know if you're a child born in a refugee camp you're probably not going to leave till you're 17 that's horrendous that's a you lifetime know, trauma yeah it's a generation i mean 20 yeah. years generation isn't it so yeah. you've got you've got a whole generation of trauma with just within that one body yeah you know and, and what that's going to look like I mean, it, the, the, the area is just so vast that I could, frankly, I could wang on about it all day long. <laughs> we, we can, we can wang on about it, uh, um, yeah, on another podcast, I'm sure, in the, in the, in the future. What I'd really like to delve into, because we've, we, we've gone over some amazing ground um, with what you shared already. Um, I, w- I really want to just delve into a little bit more about you um, and just because you're you're like you're incredibly I'm not going to use the word like hearted but like the way you look at life you're quite hilariously funny and you tell some really good jokes <laughs> and the way you just come across is like it's not that you don't take it seriously it's that you just you're able to share things in such a relatable way that I think it just enables people to take things in differently and and look at life from a, a different perspective so I was talking about you as, as, as a, pa- a very patient and loving compassionate person but with a fierce a fierce heart how and I don't know whether that's how you look at yourself because we all look at ourselves in completely different ways and I totally get that um, but you embody that and I, I wondered whether you'd you'd share like because your day your day is you have two wonderful as you put it, neurodiverse superstars to, you know, challenge you every day. You also have a husband who's also a a physically um, diverse superstar. And I just wondered how you get through your day with a smile on your face, because that's generally how you come across. Well, the the really, the really short answer is that I have and a completely inappropriate dark sense of humour. <laughs> that's, 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 that's a better way of putting it. That's where I was trying to go to, but I, I didn't want to discredit <laughs> you in any way. <laughs> it's okay. I'm, I'm self-aware. I know I do that. Um, well, the, the whole thing, I suppose I've, I've tagged along on so many people's journeys mm. and it's, it's fascinating. So, my husband has a degenerative neurological condition, so he's also neurodiverse. Yeah. Um, he his journey is just been an absolute roller coaster, and I have. I mean, he has been incredibly well supported, very, very well supported. I have so much admiration for how 
incredibly pragmatic and resilient he is because if, if that was me I guarantee I would be absolutely vile I, I would be completely vile because um, I can present as this sort of like quite laid-back patient happy-go-lucky person and the reason that I'm able to present in that way is because I am absolutely in complete control at all times <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm just a secret control freak okay. And because I am in control of, of my life and my destiny, yeah. I can I cannot worry about being in control of all the other stuff. Yeah. Um and so when we moved house um a little while back, you know, it took ages to sort out the adaptations. Yeah. And that's really undignified. So, you know, it's really undignified relying on somebody to support you with your personal care. Yeah. I would hate that. I would really hate that. And also it's incredibly, um, you know, undignified as an, as an adult, you know, a 50 something year old adult who um, has a PhD to rely on another adult to help them to leave the house yeah. Because, you know, because we didn't have access set up for, for quite a while. It all just took forever. And I just think to be able to do that, um, he, when I talk to him about it and I say, you know, how, how are you not absolutely vile? And there, there was a time quite a few years ago now where arguably he was quite vile. Um, and then it turned out that there was a mental health need that was not being met. Yeah. Well, guess what that got met and he was really quite nice again <laughs> but you know if if I'd taken a very very narrow view of that period of time and that situation I could have said oh you're a complete arse I'm off yeah um, the conversation that I had and it was uh, you know I don't want to minimize it because it was an incredibly tough time um, the conversation that we had, and I apologise if this is a no swears podcast. No, no you can swearing so loud. Um, is I had a, a very, very blunt conversation with him where I said, you're either very poorly or you're a complete bastard and I'm only willing to support you with one of those things. Yeah. And he reflected on it and decided that on balance, maybe he was poorly after all. Okay. <laughs> Even then, you know, the fight and the barriers. So we went to, um, there'd been a very, very lazy view that had been taken by professionals for whom his condition was not their area of specialism. Okay. So he'd been told by different professionals, you know, GPs and people like that, um, that, oh, it's very, very common for people in your position to have depression. Here you go, take some anti-anxiety pills. And it wasn't working at all because basically, and I'm going to be really careful how I share this because I don't want to scare the life out of people because it's quite a common condition. So um, he has MS and MS looks different for everybody. Yeah. Um, it will be his 20 year anniversary this year. So because he also has a very, very dark sense of humour, he was going, we should have a party because it's my 20 year anniversary. <laughs> Oh so God, we, we might have an MS party in the summer, which would be completely inappropriate, and we'll probably do it. And um, and everybody will have to like limp or something, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or borrow a wheelchair. Um, and his his trajectory was quite alarming because 
he was a, a full-time wheelchair user within five years of diagnosis wow. which is very very unusual yeah. so and it's important to add that so I don't scare the life out of people who've yeah. got MS because yeah. it's a very 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 broad spectrum condition it looks different for everybody so basically what had happened was to to my mind um because it's a neurological condition it seemed to me what was getting missed is that if you have a head injury if you have a traumatic head injury you're in a terrible accident people go oh you've had a head injury right let, let's support you with this and commonly people who have who have a brain injury it does affect their their personality their executive function yeah. so his presentation was absolutely terrible because all this stuff had been knocked out yeah and his trajectory with with his ms journey it felt to me like he had had a brain injury in slow motion so wow. over the, over the course of many 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 years on scans and mris and stuff um his brain has been physically and chemically altered by the progression of the disease yeah so we after i gave him this ultimatum which one is it poorly or a bastard you have to choose because one of them i'm off and the other one maybe i'm not um and so we went to see the community mental health nurse at our gp surgery because they're the gatekeeper to services uh -huh. and um and she said well people in your position self-manage and um, completely fobbed him off. So we went home and I just got crosser and crosser the more I thought about it. So I wanged off one of my famous killer emails and I couldn't find this person's email address. So I just sent it to the trust marked for her attention. And I used phrases like, um, you know, it's irresponsible practice. Here is a person, a very, very resourceful person. Yeah. Um, who is telling you that they're not coping and that there's a possibility they won't be able to continue living with their family because yeah. their, their mental health is so poor because the reality is, and this is, is very sad and a bit controversial is that when you are um, feeling very sorry for someone whose mental health is terrible, you also have to consider um, at that time, we only had our birth daughter. Yeah. You also have to consider what is acceptable. What are you willing to expose a, a child yes. to? Yeah. Because to keep saying to a child, oh, well, daddy's behaving like that because he's poorly. Well, yes, there's your explanation. But that isn't the same as saying this is acceptable and this is what you should be dealing with. Yeah. Yes, completely. And that and that's where those those boundaries come in and you say this isn't acceptable. Professional help is required now, thanks very much. So to get fobbed off by a, a by a mental health professional saying, Oh, most people self-manage. So anyway, I sent one of my killer emails and within three hours this person had phoned back um and said Oh, I've I've put him through for a full psychiatric assessment, and I've marked it as urgent. Isn't and, what um, these killer emails can do, isn't it? Absolutely. And then he was seen three weeks later by a psychiatrist, had a full assessment. The psychiatrist said, "I never would have put you on those pills. You haven't got depression. You've got something else entirely." 
um, said, was very, very open and said, it's not an exact science. It's a bit hit and miss. We'll try these pills. If they're no good, there's a bunch more pills we can try. The first set of pills he went on were remarkable and he's never looked back and he's never had to change his pills. Oh, amazing. But were Uh, apologies, I seem to have lost um, Claudia at the moment. I'm hoping she'll return. Okay, just while Claudia's disappeared. I just wanted to share with you. Um... Oh, hey, we're back. Sorry about that, guys. It's all right. Sorry, I no. witted on so long I got chopped off. You got chopped off. <laughs> Check you out. I think the computer just went no more. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's perfectly. It's, I yeah. I I as you say. I normally um we normally do I do about an hour, but I I'm totally up for um like extending conversation because I, I there's still some things I want to ask you anyway so I um yeah it was really insightful to hear um your husband's journey and you know when it, that experience because I think that would be incredibly helpful for others to hear that so yeah thank you most definitely thank you for sharing that with us um I wanted to ask you um what um I think it's kind of linked to what I just asked you, but what motivates and inspires you or, or who or what motivates and inspire you to do the work you're doing, but just to, to get up every day? I think at the risk of, of making people, you know, be a little bit, a little bit sick. I think it's my kids actually. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a kind of, Oh my God, you know, my kids are my world, rah, rah, rah. Because I think that, um, you know, there are, are women and men who have completely fulfilling lives without children in it. So I'm, I'm not I'm not coming from a point of view of, oh, you know, my life would be meaningless if I had no yeah, children. Completely. But the fact that I do have children and my children are very inspiring and my children have shone a light for me on where the gaps are. And I think that my motivation is that my my children, my family, my husband, you know, they will all always be okay because they live with me. Yeah. And my my daughter's nickname for me is the Dragon Lady. I am called the <laughs> Dragon Lady. When you go through, you know, you get assessed to death quite rightly for fostering and adoption. Yeah. And in an assessment that a social worker did of our family, um, there is the line. Um, so they interview your birth children, you know, they interview everybody who's ever met you and, you know, interview your dog, all the rest of it. And um, they asked my daughter, they asked my birth daughter to describe me. And she said, well, um, she said, mum is kind, but she is the dragon lady. And that is in an assessment. It was written down. <laughs> and if I... <laughs> and if, 
if I ever have to contact her school for any reason, and her school is great, you know, we really do not have issues with with school. If I ever email anybody, she says, oh, mum, mum, you've not scared them, have you? And I'm like, Emily, I don't go around scaring people. <laughs> but at her old school, people needed a bit of scaring, quite yeah. frankly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> um, And she, she says things to me like, oh, you've not upset so-and-so, have you? And I say, Emily, people only get upset if they're embarrassed because I've called them out for not doing their job. Yeah. And if that's the case, they need to have a little bit of a think about that and resolve it <laughs> because I don't need professionals to like me. I just need them to do their job. Yeah. And I think that's the difference. So where where I've come from and, and the service that I'm now running is very much in its infancy because I only put the Facebook group together in March and literally that was just because anecdotally on the school gate I was hearing that people were struggling and it was hard it was yeah. hard to find resources and so because I'm a bit of a nerd I just thought it would be a good place to stash all the resources that I find and it was it was a different outlet to me spamming both the kids schools because when I find good resources I just spam their schools with them and I go oh have you seen this oh look at this and they've probably blocked me now. My emails probably don't even get through anymore. <laughs> and so, so with, with my kids, and this is something that my husband says to me quite a lot, you know, whenever we go to review meetings or stuff for the kids, we come out and he says, oh, it was dead good how you said that. And you, you managed to say it without upsetting anyone and without swearing. And, like, <laughs> and he says to me, you know, what about all those kids who don't have parents who know stuff? Yeah. And it really, really is knowledge is power. I mean, money's helpful too, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it really, really is knowledge is power. And when we're looking at breaking cycles of vulnerability, that's why, to me, I keep coming back to education. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. And it's not about piling more and more responsibility on, on the teaching profession. It's not about that at all. But knowledge is how we is how we find out what we need yeah. and it's about you know going back to asking the right questions if you don't know what you need to be asking for yeah. how on earth are you going to access that service yeah you know if, if you don't know that there is a, a mental health provision that you can access for support you know what if when when my husband was having a really really terrible time quite a lot of years ago now what if i hadn't had the knowledge that there is a service out there for yeah. him. And I've just gone, oh, it's normal. Oh, this is, it's one normal. of those people who are already self-managing, according to the community nurse. Yes, yes, self-managing. Self-managing isn't, isn't, isn't getting the help you need, is it? Absolutely. You know, and self-managing a degenerative neurological condition, mm, I'd, I'd like to see what yeah, that's yeah. like. Imagine and, being a fly on the wall in, the, in those homes. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and as well, you know, when I'm in meetings about the kids and stuff, there was a very, very, very small issue at one of my kids' schools. It really wasn't a big thing at all. Um, it was about access to assistive technology. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't happening. And I said, well, that's a barrier to learning. I yeah. said, you know, you wouldn't take um, 
Rowan's wheelchair off him. Why why isn't this being addressed? And they went, oh, right. And when you're sitting in a meeting with a parent who sits in a wheelchair and you go, well, this is an issue for our kid. Can you sort this out, please? They go, oh, yeah, and they get it. Right. And I think that for, for parents, when you're feeling very cross and it's very emotional because they're your kids. Yeah. Um, to try and, and get across what needs to happen without professionals going, oh, they're picking on us and we're busy enough to bring everybody back to we are team this kid. We're all on the same team. Yeah. There's no fight. It's, it's, no. There's no fight to be had here. We're on the same team. That's what I don't. I think that's what winds me up is that hold on a minute shouldn't yeah shouldn't we be on the same team here for this child aren't we all in the 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 education for caring and being a parent for caring it's it's, it's the same um objective surely it and that's what yeah completely winds me up and doesn't make any sense a lot of the time but I, i i also understand like from my own experiences that the having a lack of knowledge and a lack of resources um has been the instigator for uh, my vulnerable child not getting the support that he needs in order to progress in the education system. It, you know, it's been it's been a nightmare. Um, but uh, I think um, with more people like you in the world, then this knowledge will be uh, shared. And I, I, I've been, yeah, I've, I think benefited a lot from your Facebook group already, and and actually shared um, it with some of the people because it's been invaluable for the you know that you're sharing other other um you know signposting people and also you've started to write your own blogs um and i just point people in the direction of wiping bogeys on someone which um (laughs) demonstrates your sense of humor and your expertise in one fell bogey swoop um and uh and i also noted and i'm going to hold you accountable here um (laughs) that you um you're going to be sharing a book in the new year as well um called what happens when i'm scared yes this and again um my son takes all credit for this because we did such a lot of work in the early days and he still talks about it still refers back to it now um so when i was explaining to him the biology of his behaviors And his behaviours, they were extreme. They really were extreme. They were very, very unsafe behaviours. And when we did an awful lot of work about your upstairs brain and your downstairs brain. So, you know, the amygdala is the downstairs brain. um, All the clever stuff that sits on top is the upstairs brain. And when he first came to live with us, he was a non-verbal communicator. And he responded very quickly to signing and then we figured out within a fortnight he had a hearing loss that had never been picked up or addressed. You know, all of this catalogue of stuff that had gone on for him. And um, so he, we talked about the upstairs people and the downstairs people. And the downstairs people who live in the amygdala, I mean, he named them all. So really, the book that I've written, it's his story. And I've used his names for the people. So... The downstairs people, the people who live in the amygdala, are people like Angry Annie, Frightened Fred, Worried Wealth, Scared Sid. And the upstairs people, for him, in his brain, he's got Clever Clara, Good Choices Gertrude, Kind Kevin, um, I can't remember who who all, all of them are. And he would say to me, when he was really, really struggling, he would say, 
I'm angry Annie. And that was such a shift. It was such a shift from the kid who used to kick my doors off their hinges. It was such a shift because when he arrived and he was a nonverbal communicator, um, all he had in the bag was anger. That was the only emotion that was available to him. And he was, he would present like, like a little, you know, a little wild animal trapped, you know, in a corner and to try and unpick his triggers. And for the first year that he lived with us, it's so hard to imagine now because he's a different child. He's not even the same child, you know, and sometimes we talk about it and we joke about it because I'd never want to hurt his feelings and I'd never want him to, to be put into shame about how his challenges presented themselves in the past. But the first year that he came to live with us, I got hit and bitten and kicked and scratched and spat out and my hair pulled Mm -hmm. every single day for the first year. And I couldn't spot what the triggers were because, you know, the triggers were from his first five years of life. I couldn't see what those were. And he was fantastically well supported by a psychotherapist um, in CAMS. And this is in a local authority where CAMS doesn't exist anymore. CAMS is gone. Um, So, I mean, and that was so hard to fight for that service for him. And he was supported for a year by this wonderful psychotherapist who he still talks about. Must have had a massive impact. Which there. which was just incredible. Um, yeah, so for him to be able for um for him to be able to externalize how he was feeling without that being a judgment about him. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a bad person. Yeah. It was just that in that moment the person shouting the loudest was angry Annie sitting in his yeah. amygdala. And he um he really really loves Toy Story four at the moment, and he really relates to Gabby Gabby, okay. who is the doll who doesn't belong to anybody. She's the uh, doll. Okay. She's rejected. At the beginning of the film, she's quite a sinister character, and then we begin to understand why she yeah. presents in that way. And he completely identifies with her. And the psychotherapist who we worked with for a year, quite a few years ago, when his placement was at risk because his aggression was off the scale, um, and he worked with this psychotherapist quite a few years ago, and out of the blue the other day, we were walking to school, and he said, Gabby Gabby has got tricky feelings, because that's what we call them in our house. She's got tricky feelings, and she needs to go and do some work with Steph. <laughs> who was his psychotherapist? Ah. So he now he is so insightful and he's so reflective. He he's just incredible. He goes to a special school, and he's so insightful and so reflective. It uh, yeah, I mean I I think we got re- reintroduced back to each other when um your uh, young man was I think he. he He'd not long been with you, had he? When he'd been with us when you first met him, he'd been with us about three years. Yeah, because I, I, yeah, two and a half, three years, I reckon. I think the times that I have been with you, and, and they've been, you know, because we're, we're not near each other as well, yeah, and and th- they've been spaced out. And I, I, you know, have seen a massive difference in when I first met him to, to how he is now, and it's just an absolute credit to all of you, you know, as a family to to have 
have taken uh, the wild child and 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 you know brought him to a place of, of peace i think in in some respects which is a, an amazing thing to do well again it's all credit to him because he has he has the capacity to take the tools I give him and to use them. Yeah. So all I've done really is provide the tools. Yeah. And the young person I was talking about earlier with the meditation techniques and when he feels his amygdala freaking out at school, he was saying the other day, he was like, oh, you know, thank you. You've really helped me at school. And I said to him, no, you've helped you at school. I just yeah. gave you the tools. You, you're doing the work. And that, that's the thing is that, you know, when you give people the right tools, they can do the work. I, and I think that goes back to one of our points at the beginning where we, we, I think we don't always understand that, yeah, children aren't misbehaving. They need something. And we as adults have the ability to give them what they need. We might not be able to, we might not be able to see it straight away, but if we work together and we listen, we're gonna find a way for that child to be able to be at peace in the world that they're they're struggling with. And actually that's our job because yeah. Yeah. behavior is a communication. Un unhelpful behaviors are a communication of emotional distress. Yeah. And when we say that kid's naughty we sidestep our responsibilities because yeah. there are no naughty kids no, no. and i get accused of being a hippie at this point but there are no naughty kids there aren't, there aren't um i think that i've had that shoved in my face probably more so with having a diverse range of four children i've got myself and and realizing um and having communication issues within the family um that, that you know my eldest boy behaving in a way that wasn't acceptable and that being classed as naughty behavior but actually I knew deep down that that it wasn't but I didn't no. know how to help him and it's really 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 difficult to know and frustrating as a parent setting as a parent to not be able to help a child because they have such complex needs um that aren't easy to you know the tools to do that aren't always easy to access um, when you don't have people around you that can share their knowledge so uh, um okay so let's go yeah let's go with our um i'm gonna ask you the question i ask everybody um and then we will um just share a few things and then we'll head off um so if you could shine a light within the world on any area of darkness what would it be it would be trauma okay <laughs> very good easy simple answer yeah i agree yeah that understanding that and and um turn a light on that definitely um and i get it's quite funny i get um i get people say to me oh you'd say that adolf hitler had a bad childhood well do you know i kind of would actually yeah, because yeah. and that's not about absolving people of their of their responsibility we're all responsible for our own behavior certainly once we hit adulthood but I would argue that happy people don't commit genocide. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, so something happened, something went wrong. I would argue he was not living his best life and the outcome for, for others around him was truly horrific. It, I, I agree. I, I think people 
can only behave in that way if something is very wrong for them as a child or early mm-hmm. years adulthood definitely um needs aren't being met people don't do that <laughs> no, no they don't okay so um claudia i will be sharing your website address and everything um in the show notes but is there is there a specific place you want to send people um, if they're listening where can they find you um the facebook group there is a facebook page the facebook group is where i share resources and people chip in have a little chit chat support each other it's a private group just because sometimes people want want to share stuff that's a little bit personal to them the page the reason for the page is because that's where i tend to advertise my workshops Uh so i've started running a workshop once a month um which really is needs led it's not terribly prescriptive the workshop um and the website is very much a work in progress because i am an it egypt i'm afraid so that is an area where i'm desperately trying to upskill myself <laughs> it's okay we we we're, we're gonna we're gonna get that sort it's gonna be amazing it's, it's to be fair though i think you've done an amazing job of it thank you the information that's needed is on there and that's the end of the day is what's needed isn't it so don't worry about that but yet i will pop all the details of the facebook group the website and the workshop in the show notes and a link to the wiping uh, bogies on someone blog as well um and you so you'll be able to find claudia um i i'm sure everyone listening will agree you've been incredibly um knowledgeable this you know the knowledge that you shared today it'd be amazing i'm sure it's going to help so many people so thank you so much for joining me and um and spend taking this time to have a, a conversation on the message. well thank you so much it's been absolutely glorious and i always enjoy chatting with you so anytime <laughs> we'll do it again sometime okay um I'll say goodbye to Claudia, Claudia and thank you for listening. Like I say, everything you'll, um, you will have heard, any um, you know, uh, coded words or anything uh, that we've said today that you maybe don't understand should be explained in the show notes. And if not, you can always email me um, or message me at sam at samolsystem.com um, and ask any questions. Um, I'd be happy to um, answer them for you. Thank you. Take care. Have a good rest of the day.